thanks for coming out. It's uh, this is a nice bookstore. I don't think I've been to this bookstore before. I like the windows here. It's uh, so um, the book I'm going to read from today is called Hylozoic, and the title that's uh, it's an actual word. You could look on Wikipedia. Hylozoism is a word, and it's the philosophical belief that all matter is alive. Like atoms are alive, chairs are alive. And it's not a, a natural thing to believe, but I've always been intrigued by the idea. And because hilo is matter, zoism is life. And uh, I guess the idea behind it, it makes me feel better about the world if I imagine that things are alive. Um, now, how would, you, how would that come about? Well, in, uh, as Tanya mentioned, there's, this is the second in a series, though you can read this without reading the first one. The first one's called Post-Singular, which is in paperback. And actually, there's a, a Creative Commons ebook version of it, too. If you look on my website, you can find it, rudyrucker.com. And, um, but in there, what happens is they find a way to sort of move... Uh, computation out of computers and just into currents of air and water and matter and atoms. And so now uh, in Hylozoic, everything's alive. And so I'm going to read you a little bit from the second chapter. And uh, so I'll read for about, oh, I don't know, maybe half an hour, 35 minutes. And then we'll, uh, we'll do some questions if you want to do that. Okay, uh, so chapter two, Hylozoic, moving the house. J.J. landed in the Mission District, right outside the building where his friend Sonic rented a room. A quick scan of the neighborhood revealed no more flying manta rays. Already they seemed like a bad dream. Sonic's crummy old building lacked a working door buzzer. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Um, so J.J. just teep... Hmm? I can't talk any louder. Does, it, does this work? Okay. Sonic's crummy old building lacked a working door buzzer, so JJ just heaped within. He could see Sonic lying on his couch with his soft pet robot on his chest, his crammed room lit by a candle. Money was still a reality on post-singular Earth, and Sonic never had much of it. JJ made a quick attempt to teleport into Sonic's pad, but the apartment's air decohered JJ's vibe not letting him form the crystal clear, real-time image of the place that he would have needed to hop in. Assuming that a person was on good terms with the local air molecules, the air molecules could block out telepathy, teleportation, or both. Hey, JJ messaged to Sonic, tell your silps to let me in. Sonic didn't seem to hear the message. His mind was elsewhere. J.J. followed the strand of Sonic's attention to a pod of elephant seals bellowing in the surf off Año Nuevo, north of Santa Cruz. The bulls were fighting for the right to mate, slashing away with their tusks, bloodying one another's necks and snouts. Each of the bull seals had a person's mind tracking it. Each player was trying to help one particular behemoth come up with winning moves. It was an all-natural video game, a guided entertainment that Sonic had set up. Sonic, repeated J.J., giving the message more force. I want to come see you. Leaving his customers on their own for the nonce, Sonic opened his eyes and told his room to let J.J. in. Woof, said J.J., materializing in his old pal's lair, the worn wood floor crunchy with city grit. Boxes and boxes of junk lined the walls. Fuffo, answered Sonic, one of their jokey old greetings. The sounds of voices drifted in the open rear window, accompanied by the scent of garbage. Sonic looked run down. You do remember about helping me move my house, right, said J.J.? I remember everything, said Sonic, every detail. It's paying attention that's hard. The people in the alley were arguing about whose turn it was to teak the garbage to the dump. I saw something creepy at our house site just now, said J.J., these two shapes like stingrays flying down through the redwoods, six feet across, easy. Did you talk to them, asked Sonic? I was scared. Anyway, teeping with them didn't work. They weren't showing up in my teep at all. Maybe they weren't real, said Sonic, losing interest. Maybe, said JJ, shaking off the memory. 
Let's not mention them to Twee. Twee is JJ's wife. She's got enough to worry about. Let's talk about those elephant seals you were looking at. I've been hearing good thing about Sonic's Animal Animats tours. My biz, said Sonic, absently fondling his shoon, Edgar. I steer my clients to the finest bestial doings. My customer base is the same noobs and goobs that went for my video game tutoring sessions. Back when video games mattered. Now everything's organic. Last week I embedded my clients into this epic war between red ants and black ants. It was hill versus hill. Those ants are freaking pitiless. Sonic rubbed his greasy face and yawned. I'm making the nut. Only thing is, I'm online too much. I don't think I ate today yet. I'll buy you a burrito, said JJ. We've got the time. Okay, said Sonic, but let me first finish out this game. How many times have I heard that? i got to bring the seal sex safari to a climax for my customers, explained Sonic. But first I give them a big scare. That's why I get return biz and good ratings. Sonic's animal animats always kicks it up a notch. Last week, in the middle of our ant war, I helped the red ants bring in an anteater. Devastating. And for today's rush, I've got a great white shark offshore. Sonic paused and mimed huge biting motions. His pet robot, Edgar, imitated him, flexing his little body into a fish-like form. Even as we speak, I'm helping the shark notice the abundant prey, Sonic told JJ. Beat your tail, Whitey. Eat them blubbery mofos. Maybe I should explain that his customers are in telepathic contact with him. Maybe I didn't make that clear. Okay, so the people, they're like logged in. It's like you're logged into a website and you're doing this game. But we're doing it with telepathy. Because this is the post-machine era. This is post-singular. We don't use computers anymore. We have telepathy. And uh, we do the computing with things like water and candle flames. J.J. teeped along. And teep is a word that means to do telepathic contact. J.J. teeped along with Sonic, watching a ghostly scarred shark come arrowing in toward the bloodied elephant seal bulls. The players riding the seals saw the shark from far away. It was the size of a rowboat. They sent their bulls wallowing up onto the beach just in the nick of time. Some female elephant seals had gathered around, drawn by the roaring and the gore. They were keyed up and primed to mate. Weary of battle, the bulls elected to share the cows. A pinniped orgy began. You're all winners, Sonic messaged to his charges. I got a bail. Giant squid versus sperm whales tomorrow. And then he was focused on JJ, all there, his brown eyes warm. Good old Sonic. Takaria now, said Sonic. Sure, said JJ. Hey, before we go, how about you splash off in the shower? That way you'll make better company. Listen to my old running buddy, said Sonic, shaking his head. He's turned priss. Like you don't remember when you and me and Twee and Kitty were the big pig posse, sleeping in hallways and cars? This said, Sonic went to clean himself up, picking his way among his dusty piles of mementos, his robot little Edgar dogging his steps. And then the two guys teleported to the nearby Taqueria Aztlan, one of the best. The inside of the restaurant was teleport blocked to prevent pilfering, but just outside the entrance, a steady flow of early dinner customers flickered were popping in and out of visibility, the air crowded with the twinkling dots and spectral forms of people in the process of solidifying or melting away. These heavily trafficked spots were a little freaky, like a speeded-up ghost movie. J.J. bumped heavily into a woman as, as he and she arrived, but fortunately the laws of physics blocked them from materializing in the exact same spot. You didn't have to worry about ending up with, like, the head of a housefly, or the legs of an old man. Do you teep how eager this burrito is for me to eat it, said Sonic after they'd gotten their food. Their dishes were exactly as they'd visualized them. Telepathic ordering was more reliable than spoken words. The cooks here, they've got away with ingredients, continued Sonic. Inca and Aztec shamans. No doubt. He glanced it over at JJ. Thanks for treating, by the way. Founders is paying you good? You watch the show? Yes, said Sonic. He paused, chewing his food. I teep into Gaia every night. It's glory to be talking to you face to talking to her face to face again. It's glory to be talking to you face to face again, the star. I should mention that JJ, uh, JJ Jimenez is his name, and his wife, Tween Nguyen, 
they're stars of a, a reality show called The Founders Show. But it's, again, it's done by telepathy. People are just, like, watching them telepathically, pretty much everything they do. But there'll be, like, ads for things in the background. One of their sponsors is Stank Grooming Products, and then there's big box stores. Anyway, but so Sonic is his old pal. Sonic's happy to see him again. People are curious about me and Twee, said JJ, because we're the ones who uh, gave everybody the memory upgrade this winter. You could be on the show if you wanted to. My colorful friend. Stank grooming products, read Sonic, staring into the space above JJ's head. Big box home furnishings. Huffin' size secure. So bogus. What if our whole planet is an ad for the creatures of the subdimensions? What if the subdimensional beings are displaying us to attract intergalactic UFOs? Hard to say this, Sonic, but you sound spun. That's because I'm so heavy into the all-new Overmind. Gaia is much vaster than the big pig ever was, and trippier. I probably should mention, too, that the, as everything on Earth became conscious, the whole planet itself achieved this, this kind of massive consciousness. In a way, it's an analog of the web. And uh, you can plug into it, and it's sort of like talking to God, but it speaks English and can do searches for you. Okay. Uh, so, and also, it's sort of a, it's almost, it's sort of psychedelic to get in touch with the overmind. It's kind of like a trip, and some people become addicted to it. People like Sonic, and JJ used to be, but he's gotten over it. Gaia is so trippy. Every part of my body gets high, my organs, my cells. But I have to be careful. If your atoms get stoned enough, your molecules fall apart. <laughs> The atoms are like, screw this H2O hassle. We just want to be two H's and an O. Floop! Sonic let out a dark, resonant chuckle. Ace Weston, remember him? I fell by his room last week, and there was a pile of soot in his bed. Carbon and trace elements. The oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen had drifted away. Did you really see that, demanded JJ, or dream it? I've never heard of anything like that. Take a look. I'm an open book. J.J. probed into Sonic's memories and promptly got lost. Packrat that Sonic was, he'd saved all the details of his Gaia visions. The ubiquitous memory upgrade had no size limits at all. Finding something in Sonic's memory was hopeless. It was like combing the entire surface of the Earth. Black dust, repeated Sonic. Didn't even stink. He finished his burrito, wiped his mouth, and pushed J.J. out of his head. I've got a memory stash like I'm 10,000 years old, huh? I'm on the nod every night. I love it. What if your molecules come apart too? Gaia will remember me. Gaia will remember me, dog. Dig this. The good thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus went, Verily I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Meaning that heaven is a memory bank. Those whom Gaia loves are immortal. Sonic drained his bottle of beer. So anyway, I'm ready to move your cabin. We're grouping at Ons. You sure you're together enough, man? Yea, verily, said Sonic. Let's hop. They landed on the patio behind An's new monster house, overlooking San Francisco from a hillside in Dolores Heights. The new mansion was squeezed in next to An's old mansion, where his ex-wife Nectar still lived. The building crew had erected the second home in a month, making the most of their ability to talk to the materials. The hilltop was pleasantly gilded by the late afternoon sun. J.J. could see the Golden Gate Bridge and a sliver of the fog-shrouded Pacific. At the far end of the patio, graceful Jill Zonder was skipping from side to side with her arms outstretched, her lustrous hair bobbing. She was leading a dance class for a dozen of the soft plastic robots that she sold. They were cute little guys, almost like living cartoons. Jill had built up a nice business, marketing shoons. That's what these little robots were called, shoons. She bought slugs of piezo plastic, trained the lumps to act like helpless dwarves, and sold them. People used shoons as toys, pets, household servants, and specialized workers. The silps and the plastic cooperated without complaint. Not having undergone millennia of evolutionary struggle to survive, silps weren't especially ambitious. And I guess I don't remember if I said a silp is a, a mind that lives in some object. Moving day, said Jill, pausing to smile at J.J., she seemed to be glowing with health and good humor, but with Jill you never quite knew. She had a lot of inner demons. 
Last winter, she'd suffered a harrowing relapse into pseudo-coke addiction, and her marriage had broken up. J.J. had played a part in that breakup. He and this desirable older woman had shared a brief, passionate affair, quite the hit on the founder's reality show. But now Jill seemed clean and calm again, comfortably settled in with Ond, a well-known nanotech engineer who'd admired her for years. Ond had been more or less responsible <coughs> for setting the singularity and its aftershocks in motion, but the public had forgiven him for it. Things were going good. A knobby, raw-looking teenage boy appeared, moving in stroboscopic hops. Momotaro, Jill's son. Close behind him were his younger sister, Bixie, and taking up the rear, An's 14-year-old son, Chu. All three of them pulsing in and out of visibility. Their trajectories were like dashed lines, with the end of each dash shading into invisibility. Teleport! Stutter! Tag! yelled Momotaro in his cracking voice, melting away and reappearing between each utterance. We aren't allowed to run, called Bixie, who resembled a smaller and more delicate Jill. Only hop one meter, added Chu, as he strove toward them, filling the air with a sparkle of materialization dots. So they'll be here, and they'll dematerialize, and then be here, and then dematerialize, and be here. So that's teleport stutter tag. Okay. They've been doing this all day, said Jill with a sigh. I keep telling them to save their energy for moving J.J. and Twee's cabin, but we never listen, whooped Bixie. Just then Chu matched the thump Momotaro in the middle of the back. You're it. Chun war, cried Momotaro, diving onto Jill's phalanx of plastic robots who began working him over like puppies worrying an older dog. Bixie cackled and joined him. Chu stood frowning to the side. Catch, said Bixie, tossing one of the Shuns Chu's way. Don't sulk. Chu sidestepped the flying blob of struggling plastic, letting it plop onto the lawn and roll. Momotaro is supposed to chase us now, he complained. Game over, said Momotaro, making a downward beep, an old-school video game sound. Cheer up, Chu, said Jill. We're all going to J.J. and Twee's party in the woods soon. Say hi to J.J. and Sonic, kids. I need a drink of water, said Chu in his flat voice. He turned and walked across the lawn to Nectar's house. Although he'd been working to heal his brain's defective empathy circuits, Chu still wasn't all that sociable, even compared to other 14-year-olds. In the moment of silence, they heard Nectar's voice rising in the front yard. Something about a tree. Live entertainment, said Sonic. Let's go watch. It won't be interesting, said Jill in a disgusted tone. Nectar picks dumb fights to get attention. The diva. I guess it's good for our show. Like the others, Jill got her cut of the Founder's royalty. Sooner or later, Nectar will boss Ond right back into her bed. No way, said J.J., wanting to reassure Jill. Ond's crazy about you. Enough about me, said Jill. Let's pick on Sonic. How come you never have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, Sonic? Uh, mostly I'm not really in my body, said Sonic, and... Sonic's a peeper, yelled Momotaro. Sonic watches Twee and J.J. doing it. Sonic smiled crookedly, unhappily. With so much telepathy, there were few real secrets anymore, but it was impolite to ferret out and to publicly air other people's intimate doings. Little jerk, he said. Would you like me to talk about who you peep? Mabel, crooned Bixie ever so softly before making into, breaking into giggles. Shut up, yelled Momo Taro. I'm sorry, Sonic. Never mind. Let's all go watch Ond and Nectar argue. Chu re-emerged from Nectar's house, carrying a wool overshirt. I'm ready for the woods. The six of them walked through the narrow space between Nectar's and An's garages. Resting on blocks in front of the monster homes was the two-room cottage that J.J. and Twee had recently cobbled together. Seeing it, J.J. felt a little rush of pride. The insulated, solar-celled roof had a generous overhang to shelter the projecting front porch, the walls' planks fit together as neatly as puzzle parts. The floors gleamed with parquet. The drains led to a nanoseptic tank beneath the floor. And they'd even built some custom furniture, a big bed and a wardrobe, a table and benches, two desks and a kitchen nook. The house's resident silk was pleasant and smart. Twee called her Vrilla. Hi, Vrilla, treep JJ. It's almost time. Beside the street, An and Nectar were standing toe-to-toe -to -toe beneath a great spreading oak tree, Ond, a tall, tentative man with thinning blonde hair, 
held a portable power saw and some kind of electrical outlet box. Nectar was wearing party shoes, a red silk jacket, and a, ja- a red silk skirt, and a jacket with black blouse, black tights, and as a concession to the fact that they're heading for the wilderness, sensible black shoes. Uh, okay. Uh, so An wants to do something stupid to the tree. Let's skip that. Uh, would you mind if I tested out my idea on one of your trees, said An to JJ. Why bother, said JJ. I'm not even using electricity anymore. Communication is telepathic. Communi- computation is silt-based. We can ask our walls to heat or cool our rooms. And the ceiling glows when we need light. When I need to go somewhere, I walk or I teleport. I don't even need an electric car. But teaking is hard work, said On. Lots of people still use cars. With pract- and teaking is uh, telekinesis, moving things or moving other objects. With practice, teaking gets easier, said JJ. The power industry is on the way out. Things are changing too fast, muttered Aunt. Tui and her father arrived, looking tense. They were carrying two large trays of Vietnamese appetizers made by Tui's aunt under her mother's direction. Damp rice paper spring rolls, fried pork dumplings, fish balls, and a yellow and green gelatin mold with tiny shrimp and shreds of cabbage. JJ could hear old Min's mumbled parting words echoing in Tui's head. It's impossible to teleport a house. You could always count on Twee's mother to be a bitch. Becoming disabled had only made her meaner. Everyone here asked Twee in a bright, brittle tone. She glanced around, counting heads. There were only ten present. Craiger and Darlene said they'd be late, put in Jill. They'll make it, though. They'll be here for the... They'll make it to your housewarming. They won't help us move, but they're coming to the party, exclaimed Twee. That's a big help. Look, we need 12 people right now. What about Kitty? Where's she? Now, I should also mention, uh, JJ and Twee have gotten a plot of land up in uh, a forest in Northern California. But they built this house uh, in the driveway in front of their friend An's house. And the idea is now to teleport the house to the place where they want to live, because that's an easier way to do it, supposedly. But because the house is heavy, and people can only lift so much with their minds, they need 12 people to move it. Okay, so let's see. Where's Kitty? Nectar side. Lorene Morales uh, hired Kitty to paint a bedroom mural for her. That's Lorene's way of getting in her hooks. And Kitty's all starstruck. She's watched Lorene for years. It's disgusting. I'd like to teach that Lorene a lesson. Oops, here they come. Ambling down the hill were Lorene Morales and Kitty Calhoun Blowsy, busty Lorene was known for her long-running erotic reality show, Caliente. In the pre-telepathy days, it had been a video blog. Over the years, Lorene had surgically changed her sex two or maybe three times. Nobody could remember. Hello, Nectar, sang out Lorene, sweetening her voice. She was wearing unbelievably tight jeans and a frilly white top. When should we schedule that lesson you want to teach me? Tonight? Maybe Kitty can help. I'm such a slow learner. Kitty guffawed. She was a good-humored, sturdy woman with paint on her sweat clothes and a brilliant blue tattoo on her neck. She'd been Nectar's girlfriend for the past few months, running a little business out of Nectar's garage, painting solar cells onto electric cars. All right, now, interrupted JJ, eager for the move. Let's all get inside our cabin and teleport it. JJ and Twee had already stowed their few possessions within Vrilla's rooms. Once they moved it to the clearing, they'd be all set. Meanwhile, Momo, Taro, Bixie, and Chu ran inside and began bouncing on the newly made bed. Sonic joined them, big kid that he was. The rest of them squeezed in. The two trays of Vietnamese appetizers set ready upon the table. They perched on stools around Tui's desk on the other side of the main room. Teeping together, the twelve became a temporary group mind, a 24-legged organism. JJ made sure that everyone was clearly focused on the foundation that he and Tui had built in the woods. And then on the count of three, they launched themselves thither, bearing the house and their contents along. Teleporting involved, so here's how to teleport, cohering your wave function so intensely that you became, in effect, an exotic elementary particle. In terms of the quantum mechanical approximation, you became a camel-humped wave function simultaneously here and there. But it's a little more complicated than that. Quantum mechanics was known to be only an approximation of the world's deeper rules. There were new realms to take into account. 
and the subdimensional levels that lay beneath the smallest imaginable Planck lengths. As the shape of JJ's wave function shifted, he felt himself skimming across the surface of a hidden sea, the Planck frontier that separated ordinary reality from the subdimensions. Voracious, meddlesome subbies lived in the subdimensional sea. They'd once attacked Twee by sending up a harpoon-tipped tendril. It was good practice to finish one's teleportation tops as hops as quickly as possible. But the mind force of the twelve teakers was barely adequate for the task of moving the house, and the passage was proceeding slower than J.J. would have liked. And then, just when it seemed like they were ready to bloom up into the Redwood Glen, old Khan lost his focus. Twee's mother was teeping him. She was having a hissy fit because they'd forgotten to bring along her special homemade ginger plum dipping sauce. As Twee's distracted father's metal grip weakened, the cabin teeped a yip of fear. They were sinking too close to the subdimensional sea. J.J. heard a noise like a wood chipper. Damn you, Mom, screamed Twee. Get away. Min withdrew. Her father regained his focus. The house settled onto the foundation in the woods. Amid relief, murmurs the group unlinked. You must respect your mother, Twee, said Khan. It's not easy for her anymore. We're lucky we made it at all, said J.J., sticking up for his wife. He went over and looked out the door. Most of the porch had been gnawed away by the insatiable beings of the subdimensions. I'll teleport in the sauce, said Khan, briefly closing his eyes. Two little pots appeared on the dining table. So all is well, Twee and J.J. I'm sorry about your porch. Main thing is we're here, said Twee, giddy with relief. She hugged her father. I'll apologize to Mom later, but let me enjoy this first. I've earned it. Isn't this spot beautiful? And our cabin likes it too, right, Drilla? Running into the clearing, Twee stretched her arms high overhead and twiddled her fingers as if dancing with the trees. That's pretty, said Jill, the dance of the dryads, like in a classical ballet. She jumped down from the doorway and joined in. So that's as far as I'm going to read today. So hit me with a question, someone. Yeah? Should I get a PhD? Should you get a PhD to read this book? No. In general? Yeah. In what subject? Uh, it's mathematics. Probably, uh, first order logic. Oh, mathematics? Well, it's fun to get a PhD in mathematics. Uh, it takes a while. And most mathematicians end up working as computer scientists. But getting a PhD in a computer science is maybe not as interesting. Well, my impression is that while well, I've worked as a programmer and as a professor, and just my impression that the things programmers are doing tend to be more interesting than if you're writing a PhD thesis, a lot of times, well, I mean, if you're, maybe if you're you know, in the virtual reality lab at MIT, you might get to do a very cool thesis. But maybe a lot of theses aren't, aren't about something so very interesting. It's like proving that two ugly Turing machines are equivalent to each other or something like that. So the, the most I learned about computer science was when I was working uh, at Autodesk for a couple of years. But mathematics, that's a good thing to study in grad school. Any questions about science fiction? <laughs> Writing? Are you a computer scientist? Yeah. No. I studied math. Oh, you studied math? Yeah. Yeah. yeah when I moved to San Jose, when I moved to San Jose in 1986, I was at that time a mathematics professor, and the department at San Jose State, that's where I was teaching, was combined mathematics and computer science. And not many people did have degrees in computer science then. And uh, they said, well, if you'll teach computer science instead of math, we'll pay you 10% more. And I said, well, I don't really know any computer science. And they said, look, you'll figure it out. You, you've learned, you learned Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It's not going to be any worse than that, you know. So, so there is this guy who was teaching... Then they gave me assembly language as my first course to teach, which was hard. Because I didn't even know what DOS meant. What is this DOS they're always talking about? And I couldn't find the on switch on the computer. It was, 
Actually, uh, but there was another guy teaching the course right before me, and I'd go to his class and write down everything that he said, and then I'd tell that to my students. And then they'd say, you know, how do you do the homework? I'd say, I can't do it. They'd say, you're a good guy. You know? <laughs> the students liked me because I was at their level, but over the years I got better. Yeah. Yeah? So, hypothetically, would you be afraid of the big pig? Uh, the big pig? No, I would welcome it. But maybe not every day. In post-singular, the big pig he's referring to, that's this global mind that emerges. It's Again, it's in a way, these books, people sometimes say science fiction is really, we say it's about the future, but in a way, it's a way of looking at the present. It's a take on the present. And... Uh, Everything becoming conscious and interlinked to being a global mind. In a way, it's like the internet. Um, but the big pig is a little more, as I say, mentioned earlier, it's a little more psychedelic. It's in a way, it's kind of like a psychedelic trip. But uh, so things like that. I mean, I enjoy them, but that's not something I do. Uh, you know, when I was in my twenties, maybe I would do it. You know, once or twice. But I don't think. It's like now I feel like I've gotten stingy. I want to use my mind for... I have all these things I want to do. And I, I, I'd be a little uneasy about blowing my mind with the big pig too often. Yeah? Yeah, as growing up, I, I loved science fiction. I, I read it quite a bit. Um, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And they had a... Well, a fairly meager collection of science fiction there, but enough. And I read all that. And then uh, in college, I was less into science fiction. I was more into beatnik literature, Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs. And then uh, it was around when I turned 30, I wanted to, to write something. And I had the idea of writing a science fiction novel. And uh, I wrote it relatively rapidly. And that was called Master of Let's see, no, it was called Space Time Donuts, yeah. And initially I couldn't sell it, but then uh, then I wrote another one, and that was Software. Or no, maybe that was White Light. Yeah, that was White Light. And then I was able to sell White Light, and then Software. And what I liked about the science fiction, there are several things I liked about it. I liked the sort of, uh, oh, it's kind of of the people. It's sort of like a, kind of a, a demotic art form. It's sort of like rock and roll in that way, as opposed to classical music. And I kind of like that about it. And uh, I also liked, I like science, I like thinking about scientific ideas. So it was a way to, to play with these ideas and take some, you know, arcane philosophical idea about science and then, but put it into a funky, real situation. And I liked that a lot. And I liked, uh, there was sort of a, a tend towards avant-garde science fiction when I started writing around 1980. And uh, so I liked I was able to give the science fiction sort of a beatnik flavor as well. So uh, I've been writing it ever since. I've written, I wrote one novel once that was a historical novel, and I like doing that too. But uh, it was about the painter, Peter, Peter Bruegel. But um, actually in... I'd always sort of meant to write a novel about Hieronymus Bosch, and I never got around to it. So he appears as a character in Hylozoic. They actually, one of the guys, JJ, uh, one of the characters I was talking about, ends up working as Bosch's assistant in his studio for a little while. And it was fun imagining what kind of person Bosch would be. Not that nice a guy. I mean, he's, he's genius, but he's you know, kind of out of it, and he has sort of a wicked sense of humor. Yeah. Have you had a, any occasion to reread some of your earliest novels recently? And if so, how well do you think they stand up over time? Um, or would you redo them if you're rewriting them today? Well, recently I actually had occasion to read two early novels because two of my novels, that novel I just mentioned, Space Time Donuts, and another novel called The Sex Sphere, were both out of print. And uh, if you're a writer, it's it's more work than you might think. It's like you kind of have to always be, you know, hassling to try to keep your books in print, to sell them, to get people to notice them. Uh, well, eventually, you know, you die and then you can stop. <laughs> Let the chips fall where they may. But as long as you're around, you do what you can. 
And uh, so I kind of, I was looking for a way to get those. And it used to be it was not so hard to get out of print science fiction books done by a small press, or even Tor Books was reprinting them. But publishing is in uh, sort of a contracting phase now. So I found this uh, new company called E-Reads, and they they said they were going to reissue them both as e-books and as a, a print-on-demand book. And I don't know, probably a lot of you know what a print-on-demand book is. But you go to Amazon, you see the book, you order it, and you get the book in the mail. It's just like a regular ordering a book. But it's just they, they don't have any inventory. There's a, a printer about the size of this building in Henrietta, New York, and it belongs to uh, Ingram. Ingram, And they're the people that supply books to bookstores. And you give them a PDF file for the book, and then when some, whenever somebody orders it, they print one. And uh, so that, so then I, getting back to your question, so then I reread those two early novels. And the very first one, Space Time Donuts, uh, well, I mean, it's, what is it they say? I mean, you have the, the energy of youth. You know, in youth, you have more passion and energy. When you're old, you have a little more skill and craft. So it had a, a lot of energy, but... You know, obviously, I feel like I could have written it better now, but I didn't want to get into heavily revising it because that's, I mean, you, you sort of don't want to do that. That way lies madness. The sex fear, on the other hand, that seemed pretty, about as good as, as I write now. So that's, I, I got better pretty quickly. So sex fear is a pretty good book. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, I didn't quite hear your question. Oh, okay, so what triggered you? What, what was your observation about present time that? Oh, well, it was actually when I started writing Space Time Donuts. Uh, well, there are two things that interested me. Uh, well, one was kind of trivial. I was annoyed at public safety announcements. <laughs> the uh, something about college radio stations—they always take free ads, you know, like for the good of the community. And they always get these real downer ads, you know, like, you know, I don't know, remember to open a bottle of beer before you drink it, you know, or just <laughs> don't, don't wash your hands with razor blades, you know, just these inane warnings, you know. And uh, for some, I was thinking about that, not that, that that had much to do with the book, but the, the science idea that I had in there, uh, well, the one idea I had it's sort of an old stoner idea. It's the idea that people say, well, what if I could shrink and I get down and an atom looks just like a solar system? You know, kind of that's sort of almost a, a cliche in movies. When, like in a Hollywood movie, they have teenagers get stoned. Somebody's always going to say that, gosh, we could shrink and we could be inside an atom and it would be a solar system. But then I thought, but what if you kept shrinking? And then what if you went down in the nucleus? And what if down inside the nucleus you found a galaxy, and inside the galaxy you found the solar system, and then you found Earth, the same place that you left from? So that's why it's called Space Time Donuts, because this idea you'd be going around, like around a donut. And so the guys in there build a shrinking machine, and they shrink all the way down, and they end up where they started from. But is it really the same? You know, you never know. And uh, another idea that I got into in that book, and in a way this was a very early cyberpunk book. Like I wrote this in 1978. Uh, and I had the idea of people plugging their minds into a computer. And that was, uh, in a way, not such a common idea then. That the, This kind of helmet kind of thing, jacking into the computer and getting this immense intelligence amplification and then having some kind of effect on society in that way. And so those are the, some of the threads that I wanted to put into there. Uh -huh. You've done a bit of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if there's a different approach you take to writing nonfiction. Oh yeah, it's it's quite different. For nonfiction, I need to know a lot about something, and it has to be true. <laughs> and you know, and I have to read what everybody else has done on it, and then it's a matter of figuring out how to explain it and make it simple. But then. When I'm going good, then I'll find ways to sort of flesh it out and add sort of new, new sidelights on something that maybe haven't been thought of before. And so I've written, uh, 
Oh, I guess four popular science books. One on infinity, one about the fourth dimension, yep. and one about mathematics in general and information called Mind Tools. And then recently I wrote one. When I first came, started teaching computer science, I thought, well, I'll just learn this stuff, and then I'll get a nonfiction book out of it, and then I'll go do something else. And so 20 years later, you know, I finally wrote a book about it. I was like the spy who gets eaten by his cover story. You know, I'd, I'd forgotten that I was anything other than a computer scientist at times. And uh, so I wrote a book called The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. And it's about the notion that everything could be a computation and what that would entail and uh, is it really true? And it's, it's kind of an, I, I think it's a pretty interesting book. But uh, writing fiction is, in a way, well, it's more fun in a way that I have the free play of my imagination and I'm creating a world that's pretty much exactly as I like. On the other hand, I have a lot of anxiety when I'm writing fiction because I never really, try as I might, I can never quite figure out the ending before I get there. You know, I'll outline, but now I'll get halfway through and I'll say, well, that ending I was imagining, that's, that's not interesting. And then I'll revise it and I'll get a little further. And there's anxiety, is it going to work? Am I going to get it together? And, but on the other hand, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's creative. And uh, I enjoy that. The book you're working on now is a memoir? Uh, no, I wrote a memoir this winter. I'm still looking for a publisher for that. Uh, if worse comes to worse, I'll publish it as a print-on-demand book. Uh, but... Uh, the book I'm working on now is, well, as I mentioned, there was post-singular in this, and I could have written a third one. I mean, people very often do trilogies in science fiction. But somehow, I didn't feel like it. I just felt like the science in there had gotten, this is, I really turned it up to 11. You know, it's gotten as gnarly as it can get. And I thought, you know, maybe don't push your luck. Let's quit after two of these. And so then, especially... Again, the way publishing is these days, you, there's the hope of writing a book that, that will, you know, a lot of people will want to read. So I'm writing something quite different. It's a book called Jim and the Flims. And the Flims are these beings that live in a place called Flimsy. And Jim is a 60-year-old guy who lives in Santa Cruz. And he's a retired mailman. He did get a degree in math, though, in college. And... Uh, he finds this portal that goes to Flimsy, this other world, and this woman kind of lures him into going there. And it slowly dawns on him that this Flimsy is actually the afterworld. And a lot of the people there are ghosts. But they're not all ghosts. There's these other things like these big radiant flying turnips. They're called jivas. I don't know if you, any of you have ever looked at Jim Woodring as a cartoonist. And he sometimes draws these, these creatures. They're sort of like, they're neat looking. And... Uh, the jivas are sort of evil. They sort of represent uh, corporate finance. They have tendrils that go out and get everything. And then there's some good things called the Yules. And uh, basically the jivas, they're tired of so many ghosts pouring in from Earth because the population on Earth has gotten so big. And they're saying, let's just bring on, let's bring on the apocalypse and terminate Earth. You know, we, and again, that's sort of like the immigration debate. Let's just wipe it out, and then we won't have people coming into Earth, coming in from uh, from Earth, and invading uh, our afterworld anymore. And uh, my hero is going to prevent that from happening, so he'll save the planet, which is a traditional goal for a science fiction novel's hero. And I'm having pretty much fun with that. It's halfway done. Actually, I just sent the proposal to the my editor today. Uh, because he had told me to wait till after Hylozoic came out. So I waited a week. And, uh, <laughs> so now we'll see, you know, we'll see if they go for it. Yeah? What do you think about Battlestar Galactica? Okay, I don't hear yeah, so. Battlestar Galactica, the TV show? Yeah. It's, what's a t I don't watch a lot of TV. I, I don't watch much science fiction on TV. I mean, so I, I don't really... I've never seen it, so I don't... Yeah. I mean, I watched The Twilight Zone, but th that was 50 years ago, you know. <laughs> Actually, Star Trek was after my time, you know. 
I'm so old that even I didn't even see Star Trek. I finally went to see a Star Trek movie uh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, the new one. It was it was interesting. I was happy. I knew there were certain phrases they were supposed to say, and I was happy to hear them say them. Set phasers on stun, you know. And so I was satisfied about that. And they had some good graphics. Where do I see science fiction going? Well, I think I think science fiction is still alive and well. Uh, it's a literature of ideas, I think. At least the way it, the way I look at it, science fiction is a literature of ideas. Maybe wait a second. Science fiction, of course, it's a, in my father's house are many mansions. Science fiction, there's lots of different things that people call science fiction, and. We're not out of ideas, and sometimes people will say, well, you know, we've written about all the cool things, you know, and that's, you know, just kind of short-sighted. I mean, you look at the newspaper or Scientific American, you know, there's so many things that are still happening and, and that still can happen. So still a huge amount. I think maybe the, 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 level, the level of literary level that's expected in science fiction, I think, has gone somewhat up over the years. I mean... You, you, I mean, I, I try to write at a, a pretty lapidary literary level and polish it and get the right sound. Or you take somebody like William Gibson. He's, you know, writing really beautiful fiction. And uh, I think that's a movement that you'll see. There's also science fiction spills out in the mainstream. I mean, every so often mainstream writers will write science fiction books. They don't never call it science fiction then, though, you know. Science, they call it imaginative literature or speculative literature or... They don't want to <laughs> put that word on it, you know. And uh, so I think it'll be around for a long time to come. Uh, I guess another a related question is where is publishing going? And that's, that's a complicated question. It's, uh, there's a feeling that, talking about singularity, there's a feeling that something, things are, are in a way going to change. It's like, are ebooks ever really going to take over? And so far, they're still poking along. They've got maybe two percent of the market, but and there's some. So maybe they'll catch on in a big way. Maybe not. It's a. Uh, it's a little hard to be sure. Yeah. What about the subject matter? Well, uh, there's there's sort of fans and waves. I mean, there's, there's kind of a fan for space opera recently. There's certain things that people like to read. I mean, there's some things that are sort of, in a way, to me, they're maybe a little dull sometimes. Where, you know, you have the Space Navy and a starship, and they're out fighting other starships and, you know, finding aliens. I mean, that's, that can be, I mean, if, if you have really good aliens and interesting stuff happening, but it can also be a little bit, a little bit stale. And the whole idea of us ever being in starships, to me, it seems less likely than it did when I was a boy. It's like it's almost like thinking you're going to drive a car to the moon, you know, or a chariot. I have this feeling if we're traveling, it's probably going to be by some other means. It'll be something more like teleportation or turn yourself into a light ray and or something. I don't think it's going to be something so obvious as building a honking big spaceship the size of a city. I mean, much as it's beloved in movies and because then when you do the math, oh, by the way, it's going to take you 700 years to get there. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> maybe I'll get the next ship, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so there's that. And then biotech is, that's huge. You know, a lot of stuff to write about there. And that's really hasn't, it's only been scratched the surface of, you know, tweaking different animals to do things. Uh, you know, plant a seed to grow yourself a house. There's a lot of nice stuff people haven't written much about. And the whole, uh, the whole level of the psyche, the whole thing with, we, we have such a vague understanding of the mind. I mean, there, there could be some really big thing that we still aren't getting about the relationship of the mind to nature or dreams, the afterlife. There's all this sort of fuzzy stuff that hasn't really been, we don't know what's going on, and so there's plenty of room for interesting speculation. So um, I'd see more biotech and more. Also, uh, 
lots of stuff about computers, but I mean, a way that's been done to death, but uh, who knows? Yeah? Uh, do my characters ever surprise me? Yeah, uh, on a good day. You know, I'll, I'll have a scene going, and then I always, I don't like for my characters to say the predictable thing. I think it's more fun when they say something offbeat, because those are the kinds of friends I value that, you know, will surprise me a little bit by the things they say and do. And so I try to have my characters do that. And then sometimes they will, like, go, you know, hog wild and, like, have sex with each other that I didn't expect them to, you know. Or, or suddenly you turn around and slit somebody's throat just for the hell of it, you know. But, uh, so that's, I forgive them for doing that, you know. So it's, it keeps it interesting. But, uh, so yeah, to the extent that the book can surprise me, that's why, in a way, you can't really and truly outline for a book. Because, I mean, why in the space of a week would you be able to figure out everything that you would think of over 18 months of writing? It's just not possible. And so you have to, be, at least I find it useful to let the book surprise me, let new stuff happen. So, maybe that's enough. Just One more? How long does it take to put together a book like I think it took me a year and a half or possibly two years. You could, if, if you want to know all about the process, I'm sort of very orderly. So I keep, when I write a novel, I keep a, a, a document that's called the notes on the book that is usually, actually I think the notes for Hylozoic are perhaps twice as long as Hylozoic. And then I wrap that up into a PDF file and I put it online. So if you go to rudyrucker.com slash writing, you can find uh, the writing notes for Hylozoic, for Post Singular, for really my fast six or seven novels. So, and in there, there's always a calendar of how long it took. And uh, if you are going to be a writer, there might be some useful stuff in there. You know, lots of complaining about how hard it is. <laughs> That's see, if you don't feel like writing, then you can go in your your notes, your document, your journal document, and complain about how unhappy you are and how it sucks. And then you feel better, and you've written something, you know. So it's been a good. Well, you have to get to a certain level of pain and, and anxious before you can actually write. Yeah. The actual writing doesn't take that long. It's just getting yourself pumped up to do it. So thanks for turning out, you all. And if uh, anybody's a book they want me to sign, I'll be glad to do that.